This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to Portable Peds, the pediatric board review podcast. Today is going to be our review episode where we're going to go over our past month of infectious diseases in the chest. So we're going to start off with endocarditis. So if you remember, prior to the 1970s, most kiddos with infective endocarditis had underlying rheumatic heart disease. For the past two decades, however, underlying congenital heart disease has been the largest risk factor for the development of endocarditis. In recent years, there's been an increase in the number of patients without underlying congenital heart disease who have been developing endocarditis. So endocarditis develops when a causative organism is present in the setting of damaged cardiac or vascular endothelium. Gram-positive cocci are going to be your most common pathogens. Risk factors for endocarditis are going to include underlying congenital heart disease, foreign materials such as grafts and prosthetic valves, and central lines which project into the right atrium as these lines can damage the cardiac endothelium. When thinking about presentation, endocarditis should be suspected in any child with underlying congenital heart disease who presents with an unexplained fever. In patients without underlying congenital heart disease, the presentation of endocarditis can be indolent and a high index of suspicion is required, especially in patients with prolonged fevers with autoclear source or in a patient who has a new or changing heart murmur. Other symptoms to look out for include headaches, arthralgias, malaise, and myalgias, and the patient may or may not have a history of weight loss. Some other signs of endocarditis include Osler nodes, Janeway lesions, Ross spots, and splinter hemorrhages. While these are common in adult endocarditis, they are relatively rare in children. When diagnosing an endocarditis, you should use the modified Duke's clinical criteria as your main tool. If you want to hear more information about this, tune into our episode on endocarditis where we reviewed these clinical criteria. The other main thing to keep in mind with endocarditis is some important associations in terms of causative pathogens. So let's run through some important pathogens and their associations. Enterococcus endocarditis is associated with genourinary disorders. These can include GU infections and manipulations of the GU tract, which can occur during pregnancy and delivery. Bearden's group streptococci endocarditis is associated with dental procedures in susceptible patients or patients who have general poor dental hygiene. Staphylococcus aureus is becoming the most likely cause of endocarditis in recent years. You should think about staph aureus in patients with indwelling central lines, IV drug use, diabetes, chronic skin disorders, and burn patients. Coagulase-negative staphylococci endocarditis is associated with prosthetic valves, and finally, salmonella endocarditis is associated with HIV infections. Well, that about wraps it up for endocarditis. If you want more information, go ahead and tune into our episode of the month, and I'm going to kick it over to Ryan, who's going to talk about some community-acquired pneumonia high-yield facts for us. All right, so now that we're done talking about endocarditis, let's shift over to talk about community-acquired pneumonia. So per the Infectious Disease Society of America's 2011 Guidelines for Community-Acquired Pneumonia, also known as CAP, in children and infants, the indications for hospitalization include moderate to severe CAP, as defined by several factors including respiratory distress and hypoxemia, specifically sustained SpO2 less than 90%, 
infants that are less than three to six months of age with suspected bacterial cap, suspected or documented cap caused by a pathogen with increased virulence, such as MRSA, or if it was concerned about careful observation at home or they're unable to comply with therapy or unable to be followed up. Indications for admission to an ICU or a unit with continuous cardiorespiratory monitoring with CAP include impending respiratory failure, requirement of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, such as CPAP or BiPAP, requirement of invasive ventilation via a non-permanent artificial airway, such as an ET tube, sustained tachycardia, inadequate blood pressure, or need for pharmacologic support of blood pressure or perfusion, pulse ox measurement less than 92% while on inspired oxygen of greater than 50%, or if they have altered mental status from their pneumonia, whether from hypercarbia or hypoxemia. Now, when it comes to obtaining chest x-rays, routine chest x-rays are not necessary for the confirmation of suspected cap in patients who are well enough to be treated in the outpatient setting. So after evaluation in the office, clinic, or in the ED. Chest radiographs, PA and lateral, should be obtained in patients with suspected or documented hypoxemia or significant respiratory distress, and in those with failed initial antibiotic therapy to verify the presence or absence of complications of pneumonia, including paranemonic effusions, necrotizing pneumonia, and pneumothorax. Now let's talk about treatment. So when it comes to bacterial pneumonia, the preferred treatment for presumed bacterial pneumonia outpatient is amoxicillin. So the recommended dosing for amoxicillin to treat with is 90 mg per kg per day divided in two doses. Or for people who like to do math normally, it's 45 mg per kg per dose, BID. And this is for 10 days duration. The duration of 10 days is the best studied. However, shorter durations may be just as effective, especially for mild disease treated in an outpatient setting. Now, amoxicillin should be used as first-line therapy for previously healthy, appropriately immunized infants and for preschool children with mild to moderate cap, suspected to be of bacterial origin. Amoxicillin provides appropriate coverage for strep pneumo, which is the most prominent invasive bacterial pathogen. Now let's shift over to atypical pathogens. So azithromycin is the recommended treatment for presumed atypical pneumonia when treated outpatient. So macrolide antibiotics should be prescribed for treatment of children, primarily school-aged children and adolescents, who are evaluated in an outpatient setting with findings compatible with CAP caused by atypical pathogens. So the most common organisms for atypical community-acquired pneumonia in children are mycoplasma pneumoniae, chlamydia trachomatis, or chlamydophila pneumonia. Empiric treatment is with 10 mg per kg oral azithromycin on day one, followed by four days of 5 mg per kg of oral azithromycin. So this is your standard Z-pack of five days total of antibiotic duration. So finally, let's talk about viral pneumonia. So antimicrobial therapy is not routinely required for preschool-aged children with CAP because viral pathogens are responsible for the great majority of clinical disease. Antibacterial therapy is not necessary for children, either outpatient or inpatient, with a positive test for influenza virus in the absence of clinical, laboratory, or radiographic findings that suggest a bacterial co-infection. Now, oseltamivir, also known as Tamiflu, is approved for patients who are aged 14 days or older. It's recommended to start antiviral treatment if started within 48 hours of symptom onset, which can decrease symptom duration for up to 36 hours. However, even if started after 48 hours of symptom onset, there can still be potential benefit in starting oseltamivir to decrease symptom severity. Now, in children, the recommended duration is 5 days, but the dosing depends on the age of the child. Influenza antiviral therapy should also be administered as soon as possible to children with moderate to severe CAP, consistent with influenza virus infection during widespread local circulation of influenza viruses, 
particularly those with clinically worsening disease, which is documented at the time of an outpatient visit. Because early antiviral treatment has been shown to provide maximal benefit, treatment should not be delayed until confirmation of positive influenza test results. Negative results of influenza diagnostic tests, especially rapid antigen tests, do not conclusively exclude influenza disease. But that pretty much does it for community-acquired pneumonia. Now let's shift gears and finish up our talk by talking about bronchiolitis. In terms of what the AAP recommends for their guidelines regarding the treatment, observation, and management of bronchiolitis. So these guidelines are from the AAP Peds and Review Guidelines from 2014, where they talked about how bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis based on history and physical exam. So because of this, it's not based on a chest x-ray. It's not indicated. You don't have to get a chest x-ray. In addition, chest x-rays may inadvertently lead to unnecessary use of antibiotics. So these are not recommended in routine bronchiolitis management. Now, in terms of observation, the AAP recommends that if the oxygen saturations are 90% or higher, oxygen is not needed. Along those same lines, if the patient has no supplemental oxygen requirement, the AAP states that you can consider not using a continuous pulse oximeter and just doing spot checks. And a lot of people talk about whether or not albuterol is helpful. So the AAP recommends against using albuterol aerosols as routine management of bronchiolitis. There also was a recent article published in Pediatrics in August of 2021 that had a multi-site study talking about how hospital-level early bronchodilator use was not associated with any differences in patient-level hospital or ICU admissions, ED return visits, or invasive or non-invasive ventilation. Basically, this article supported the AAP guidelines saying that albuterol aerosols should not be used as routine first-line therapies for bronchiolitis. So the evidence is still out regarding 3% hypertonic saline and high-flow nasal cannula. Some articles say it's helpful, some say it's not for routine bronchiolitis management. But for the most part, the AAP recommends just watchful waiting. Bronchiolitis will get better with time, and that's pretty much it. And Sam, play us out. So that wraps it up for this month and next month we'll be moving on to oncology so be sure to tell your friends about this podcast keep listening to us and we'll see you next time thanks guys